0: Hello, and welcome to the Pragmatic Live podcast series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management, product marketing, and other market and data-driven professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Calajaris, Vice President of Marketing at Pragmatic Institute, and your host for this episode. Today, we're joined by Kyle Poyer, VP of Market Strategy at OpenView, a venture capital and private equity firm out of my hometown, Boston. Welcome, Kyle.
1: Thanks for having me, Rebecca.
0: All right, uh, to start. Can you tell us a little bit about OpenView and your role there?
1: For sure. OpenView is a venture capital firm investing exclusively in B2B software companies at the expansion stage. And we were founded in 2006 with the idea that a venture capital firm can and should actually add value beyond just the capital that we're providing. And so the the approach we took was let's get extremely focused and invest in one stage of company uh, in one sector, which is B2B software companies at the expansion stage. And then let's build out an actual purpose-built team that can go help those companies scale. And so I lead, uh, the consulting arm of that team, uh, where we work hand in hand with the portfolio executives on projects, ranging from, uh, growth strategy, pricing and packaging, uh, sales and marketing, and kind of go to market strategy more broadly and a whole host of stuff. So, uh, it's, it's a really awesome role. And before OpenView, I was a consultant uh, at a firm called Simon Couture & Partners, which is the world's largest pricing and packaging uh, strategy consulting firm. And when I was there, we were working with everyone from diaper makers to casket manufacturers. So uh, <laughs> definitely cradle to grave uh, but with a number <laughs> of subscription and B2B software companies in the mix.
0: Fantastic. So you have a, a ton of experience on sort of taking strong products and uh, in, improving and increasing the revenue by the way you package, the way you price, the way you bring them to market. Uh, and I think that we can dig into a bunch of stuff there. I'm excited.
1: Likewise, and, and that's really my passion to me is I, I meet a lot of amazing founders who have a great idea, but then I'm fascinated with how do you take that that idea and that product and find a market uh, where it's gonna resonate. And then how do you set the right offer the, offer the right package at the right price and with the, the right sales channel and process uh, to really build a large and enduring business.
0: So I think one of the ways that you and, and OpenView really do that though is through product-led growth. So I'd love to just talk a little bit more about that and maybe first give us a sort of a level set definition for our audience and what you mean by product-led growth.
1: Definitely. And it is a term that we, we coined a few years ago. So the audience is definitely forgiven <laughs> if they, uh, they're not familiar with it. So at OpenView, we think about product-led growth as a business strategy where product usage serves as the primary driver of user acquisition, conversion, and expansion. You can think about businesses like a Slack, Dropbox, and Atlassian, or a Zoom. You probably didn't start using those products because a sales rep reached out to you. Someone at your company, probably an end user, found the product, started using, using it, and all of a sudden, it's everywhere in your company. And that phenomenon, OpenView certainly didn't create the phenomenon, but we're realizing more and more companies are adopting product-led growth as a way to reach their end users uh, in an efficient manner. And so we're seeing more and more software companies grow through primarily this uh, this approach.
0: Wow. And, you know, your examples really resonate, right? That's, I mean, that's exactly how Slack and Dropbox and Zoom uh, <laughs> came to be at the company at Pragmatic and actually at the last company I worked at, too. So that's that's fascinating. So. Um, all right, so I think that gives us a good idea of what we mean by it. What are sort of the, the four steps? I think you've kind of broken product-led growth into four different steps to it. Can we maybe dive into each of those? Definitely.
1: Well, I think the first one is kind of going back to that point about appealing to end users. And to me, when you think about the, the audience for this podcast, right, a lot of folks are probably product managers, product marketers they're probably used to building for the buyer or the executive. And that's the way software has been sold for the last decade or more, right? You want to find that executive champion, that person that's looking for real ROI Uh, and an end user is kind of the secondary audience in in a lot of cases. They use the product, but they're not the one that, that uh, decides whether or not to buy it. And so, you know, you want to have a good experience for them, but it's, it's not lost revenue. If you don't The the, to adopting product like growth, they're kind of flipping that script and saying, we want to have an amazing end user experience and solve for end user pain. And then later on, solve for more actual buyer and executive pain. And so I can get real, real specific. And so if you think about like, an end user uh, for in a in a sales organization, they might say, I hate scheduling meetings. I feel like all my time is spent scheduling meetings with customers Uh, And it's so many emails, so many back and forths, and it takes a long time. While the executive cares more about, we need to manage our sales pipeline, we need visibility into our pipeline and into uh, leading indicators of our pipeline, right? It's a very different concern. And so a business like Calendly says, we're going to start with that end user, and we're going to solve this annoyance, this pain point that they're having, and we're going to make scheduling meetings so much less frictionless, And so they start by really appealing to that sales rep that just hates this back and forth, hates all the emails, hates the headache of it. And then later on they go, oh, we can integrate with Salesforce so you can sync all of the meeting activity. We can integrate with web conferencing so you can just immediately attach your dial-in. We can send follow-up emails. We can send reminders to make sure that uh, people are actually showing up to your meetings. And so you're starting to solve for actual manager and executive later on but that's not what gets you in the door so to me that's that's first and foremost if you don't do that in terms of solving for the end user it's hard to adopt many of the other characteristics of product-led growth
0: you've got to have a great product built with the the product is built the experience is built with the end user in mind i think that makes a ton of sense what's the second step that that first one's big let's not (laughs) undercut like that's easy but what's the next one?
1: You've got to then distribute to end users and in many cases, that means that your the, the price comes after the value, right you have you don't put a paywall in front of your product or a form wall. you don't have that typical uh, process if you go to the website, have to request a demo, wait a little bit for someone to qualify you to see if you're even eligible for that demo and then you know go through a demo process just to get set up with the trial, right So instead, someone should just be able to. Start using your product, sign up ideally with just an email or some sort of single sign-on system and have access to it uh, and be able to reach their, an activation moment or a, a time in the product where they've seen tangible success. And so for Slack, you might think of this as a certain number of messages sent or for Dropbox, a certain number of documents stored or calendar, a certain number of meetings scheduled. And then you're only asking for payment after someone has reached that point. Uh, and we're seeing increasingly these kinds of free and self-service offerings are more and more common in software companies and really the norm for any company adopting product-led growth.
0: So I think one of the fears people have in this sort of, you know, uh, starting with a free trial or a low price or a freemium piece is that does it ever, does it ever become profitable, right? And I know, I think you have some great examples or anecdotes that help people combat that. That it is indeed not just a path to users, but a path to revenue.
1: Certainly. Well, and I think it it is, so if you look at like a block there, well, let me rewind a little bit. I've, I've been in the pricing and packaging world for a while. And that always the challenge with freemium is the conversion from free to paid. That's certainly the challenge that Evernote, I think of as like the poster child for that. But I would say Dropbox has had major challenges with it as well. Uh, In a lot of cases, you have a free experience that's so good. There's not a whole lot of motivation for the user to ever pay you. But in the uh, B2B software model, I think of it as you're taking a free experience, and that's a way for people to get started with the product. But there should be some sort of compelling event that leads them to end up paying for your solution. And so you shouldn't just give away kind of the whole product. Uh, and, and as an example, I think about actually going back to Calendly, uh, they have a really strong motion of converting free users into paid users. So You sign up, and you start getting all the features for Calendly for your first uh, two weeks. And you can use really everything, all the bells and whistles in the product. So it's, it's kind of that free trial motion. And what they want you to do is connect your calendar, start scheduling meetings, create multiple meeting types where, you know, if you have a 30 minute meeting or an hour long meeting or, you know, maybe also a 15 minute meeting, maybe an in person and a virtual one, create your own personalized Calendly link. So you can do all of these things for free. But at the end of the two weeks, things start getting taken away where you can still use the product as much as you want for free, but you can't access all of the bells and whistles in it. And so what that does is it exposes people to kind of that that new moment of what life would be like uh, if they had the paid version of Calendly, and the price is really not that high. And so it, it it gives a reason for someone to convert and pay. And then what's nice from Calendly's perspective is that by nature of the product, it's a collaborative product. So you're inviting other people to your meetings, you're exposing other people to Calendly, and all of a sudden Calendly is able to go from having one paid user in an account, to five, 10, 20, 30. And then at a certain point, they do have a customer success team that's talking with the executives. So that's talking with a sales leader, for instance, or a customer success leader, and saying, look, you have a lot of people using Calendly. Don't you want uh, to you know give access to everyone on your team? You could you could I- embed Calendly within your website uh, so that prospects can just sign up, schedule a meeting instantly. Uh, you can do round robin scheduling. So you know people can schedule with anyone uh, on the sales team and you're kind of getting an even distribution of leads. So you start actually reserving some of those higher end features that appeal to executives for uh, the moment when an executive is is ready, but the end users are giving you permission to to get there. So I, I don't really think that premium necessarily means no path to monetization. It just means a more of a bottoms up approach and being smart with how you design features and kind of gates in the product uh, to make sure that you're able to capture more and more revenue over time.
0: That's a, I think it's really interesting too with Cal and Lee, where they give you all the advantages up front. When you're the most interested because you had the acute pain, which is why you signed up for the program, they're going to give you all the bells and whistles so you experience it firsthand. And then they're going to take it away versus a lot of them start with the base model, but, Oh, if you want X, you add this, well, maybe my life I've gotten used to it, but that's a, that's kind of a great, great switch on that. And then I also know you had shared a stat about zoom and um, that 55% of their customers who spend a hundred thousand dollars or more started with one free user. And
1: is not that amazing.
0: <laughs> that's, I mean, that's, that's it. And I think that that idea that there isn't a path to revenue, no, it's not again, it's how you you have to um, plan that path from the get go, right? Know how you're planning on converting those people from the very beginning. I think to be the most effective in those conversions from free to pay.
1: Exactly, and I think with with the Zoom model, it's so fascinating because there is this preconceived notion that you can't use a freemium approach to sell into the enterprise, and it's that's you know, freemium is a consumer or uh, you know, individual small bu- or small business play. But Zoom, I think, proved that you can make the model work extremely effectively. And for them, I, I love the way they've set up their packages where you can schedule as many meetings as you want for free. And those meetings, they're one-on-one meetings that can go as long as you want. But when you have a group meeting, uh, like if you have a couple of, of sales reps and then a customer, for example, uh, there's a 40-minute time limit on those group meetings. So you get kicked out and have to create another uh, another meeting through zoom and it's it's a little bit of friction but I mean at the end of the day you can get around it right you're kicked out of the meeting you can start a new one you don't want to look bad in front of your customers or mm-hmm. it's an important meeting you don't you know it's it's not worth the hassle and kind of the brand reputation and so that leads you to to buy an individual account and then all of a sudden other people are are jealous that you have Zoom and they don't and zoom just seems to work <laughs> and other <laughs> systems might not work and then all of a sudden you have hundreds of people using zoom in an account and a reason for uh the company to say hey we're using this we should uh buy an enterprise wide wide account so that we can manage it uh so i think that's that's an amazing example
0: all right so we talked about first step appeal to end users second step is to remember that sort of price comes after value after the aha moment as you put it what's the third step
1: the third step is really investing in customer success and then sales, right? And so you've got all of these users coming to your product and their end users. You need to be able to support them, right? So you need to find a way to automate uh, responses to their questions, and that support might mean uh, someone that is the front line when customers run into issues. You can identify those issues and uh, and you know maybe write uh, frequently asked questions, right? Add that to your knowledge base. Uh, improve your product so that 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 doesn't come up, but you're learning from what's getting in the way of of users finding value. And then as users become teams, you're increasingly adding more proactive customer success to help them be successful. And what the success team is really doing is they're accelerating your rate of expansion in an account and they're helping reduce friction that might get in the way of a team or a, a company being successful with your product. So if it's an end-user focused product, but there's things that, uh, that a team might want to do, like set up an integration or have invoice-based payments or have answers to some specific questions around, you know, can the product do X or Y that fits with their process? You want to have someone that's more proactive that can that can address those questions. And then as you go from users to teams to entire departments or companies, that's where sales comes in. And sales is uh, is quite different in these kinds of product-led businesses, ideally, you should be using your product data to sell. And so you can, you can use metrics like, and I don't, I don't know if you've talked to other, other guests about this, but you can use metrics like product qualified leads or PQLs where you're looking at, at activity in the product that's a leading indicator of future conversion. And you're able to say, hey, sales rep, this account just did something in the product that indicates that they're ready to buy it's a good time to reach out to them. And this is the kind of message that you should use with them uh, because this is what's going to be effective and this is what's going to be helpful for them. You're using data and you're able to uh, really personalize the interaction. And the sales process starts looking extremely different from the traditional B2B software sales process where it's you know, based on people that are already familiar with the product. So you don't need to waste a bunch of time with uh, demos and and, creating cha- and finding champions in an account. You're really enabling people that are already happy. They like your product and, they, and you have the same goals that they do, right? Which is to uh, expand the product in the, in the account and, and have more people using it and, and be even more successful with it.
0: All right. Appeal to end users. Price comes after value that invest in customer success. Uh, to kind of get that scale of sales, what's the what's the fourth? What's the final step, Kyle?
1: So the final step is to measure everything with, and you know, this is a bit of a cliche piece of advice at this point, but I think it's especially urgent to say because product-led businesses, or really most software businesses now, have so much potential data, but it's extremely hard for people to access that and make decisions based on it. So the first thing I would say is. Set up product analytics. There's a lot of great tools out there for product analytics that can allow you to to look at things like user journeys, user cohorts, what people are doing in the application, and to look at it in in a time-based way. So looking at what's the first thing they're doing or what are they doing their first day, first week. And setting up product analytics is really gonna allow you to understand what causes friction uh, in that user journey and help more people get successful, which Honestly, if people are set up for success, everything else is going to look great, right? Like you're going to have, successful users are going to have um, convert, uh, they're going to eventually convert at a higher rate and they're going to stick with your product for longer and they're also going to be more likely to expand. So the analytics should be the foundation of that. And then once you have those analytics in place, I would recommend defining user activation. So the activation metric is that initial point when someone has seen value in the product. And so, this is something that it's a leading indicator for everything else that you want to want to do. And having a measure of user activation is great for any experimentation you want to do, right? So, if you change the onboarding flow, or you uh, you emphasize different parts of the product, or you personalize the user experience in the application, or you maybe even adjust uh, the way you reach out, email, or set up customer success to reach out to accounts. Uh, That's going to be something that you want to make sure it improves this user activation metric, which is a leading indicator for conversion, retention, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, So define user activation and then run experiments where you're able to see what's the change in activation. And the final thing is just make make sure to look at everything on a cohort basis. So I've seen uh, with a number of companies, they look at averages or trends over time. But the the trick is you want to actually compare apples to apples, which means for users that started in June, how do they compare in their journey to users that start in July, to August, September, et cetera. And that's what's going to allow you to get the best insights out of all this data that you're collecting.
0: That makes complete sense, right? Because you've shifted so many things along the way. Uh, You'd get muddy data if you looked at it globally, whereas you can see the impact of various improvements and changes when you look at them at a at a cohort base exactly so um this is fascinating and for those of our clients listening who maybe aren't in this product growth or or product led growth yet but are thinking of doing that what are the how do you are there are hints on top of those four steps for transitioning for getting started
1: so yeah, I, and I get asked this uh, quite a bit. I think to me, what's fascinating is to think about examples of companies that uh, that were successful in terms of transitioning from uh, never having pro- uh, a product-led growth sort of element to, to doing this. And so I think HubSpot is actually a great example. Uh, a number of folks are probably familiar with HubSpot, uh, and they were pioneers of the inbound marketing movement. Uh, they would you know, do a ton of content marketing, blog posts, ebooks, et cetera, come up with a scientific or somewhat scientific marketing qualified lead score, and then send those to the sales team to try to have conversations with do demos with those people. And then the product came later on. Uh, but I think what's fascinating is HubSpot now has uh, freemium versions of all of their products. They've announced that more than half of their uh, new customers started with the product before ever engaging with someone on their team. Uh, And and so it's a real big shift to adopting product-led growth. And I think what made them successful with it uh, was first being able to, uh, so they experimented with one product that was uh, tangential sort of in the business. It was targeting a slightly different user persona. It wasn't their typical DNA. um, And and so it wasn't necessarily uh, their biggest revenue stream product that allowed them to get a lot of learnings about how to optimize this kind of model and how to get kind of the the PLG or product-led growth DNA into the business. So I think that's super helpful advice is to be able to start product-led growth on a new product line uh, or a new feature rather than starting on the the core product, which is gonna be harder to adjust. The other thing is that before HubSpot even did that, they had free products that they offered that led into uh, the product that they were trying to sell. And so I'm not sure if, if other if folks have done this, but they've always had their uh, website grader product where you put in your URL for your website and it grades you based on your performance and you know your mobile friendliness, your SEO, your security, and gives you recommendations for how you can improve. And then, oh, by the way, that's a great feed-in for HubSpot where oh, you want to actually improve this, you should use HubSpot for it. And they've now had 4 million plus uh, websites graded through their website grader. And I think that's a great example of if you're thinking about where you should spend your next amount of budget, should you do maybe a, a white paper, an ROI study, um, or paid advertising, are there products that you can offer that appeal to your user or your customer base and that tie into the product? But maybe, So maybe it's uh, not your core product itself, but it's something that ties back to it think about what can you do with product uh, to accelerate sales and marketing. And you can do that even if you don't have a freemium offering, because uh, this is going to generate qualified leads that are going to be interested in your paid product. And so it's a kind of a, a product-led approach to content marketing in some ways.
0: Well, that's a great way of looking at it. If you're transitioning into this, to think of it almost as the 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 add-on or the uh, that the web grading Tool is a great example of which they've certainly graded ours. Uh, it's both sort of experiential, it's, it's quick, it's satisfying, and it's actionable. Um, so even though that is not uh, a direct reflection of the core offering that is HubSpot, it speaks to that same audience, and it just gives you a sense of, uh, of some of those main characteristics that are part of their brand. Uh, and to be able to take that in and of itself that's free, even if they hadn't shifted everything or anything else, Allows you to use that same strategy that you've talked about today in terms of getting bigger awareness and bigger fans before moving them into the sales cycle
1: Exactly. And I think what one of the challenges that I know companies face and that i'm, I'm uh, I want to just be mindful of is that if you have so, and I, I've worked with companies that have been in the situation where you maybe have never really had a product-led approach, don't really have a classic premium or free trial model that people use without. Uh, help from a sales rep, for instance, uh, some people ha- then try to adopt self-service and have a self-service offering. But then what they find is that users start using it. They don't really get that successful with it. You know, Very few of them convert. Those that convert don't stick around for a while. And maybe it's appealing to an audience that's not your target customer segment. So it's attracting a bunch mm. of small businesses if you sell into the mid-market. So I think sometimes if companies try to do too much too fast, uh, they, they can run into challenges and you, you want to make sure that you're able to really embrace this whole kind of holistic approach to product-led growth. And it's not just about doing the one thing, like just having a free trial. It's about kind of rethinking how you approach the business in terms of leading with the end user and doing these other things to appeal to the end user uh, to make sure they're successful.
0: Awesome. All right, Kyle, we talked about a lot of different things today. Uh, If you could get our listeners to do two things differently tomorrow based on what we talked about today, what would it be?
1: Well, the first would be investing in product analytics. Uh, And that's something that, to me, companies, when I talk to them, a lot of them have some sort of analytics but when you start asking questions about it, it's not set up in a way that uh, is actionable for decision-making and that's self-service so that people across the organization have access to it and can make decisions based on the data. And that includes less technical folks like designers or uh, people even on the kind of customer success team or the sales team and so adopting product uh, product analytics in a way that is self-service <laughs> is certainly uh, up there. And I think the, the other thing would be to just do uh, research in terms of uh, customer value and, and the customer journey. And I think what you'll find out as you do that, uh, you'll be able to understand friction points in that user journey. So then uh, this, and you can do this both if you have uh, if you've already adopted product-led growth where you have some sort of free offering, self-service offering, but you want to optimize it, or if you haven't, uh, but to me, when I think about product-led growth, one way, one kind of lens to view it is that you're taking things that would otherwise be done by a person, uh, right? Like a very manually intensive marketing, sales and customer success process. And you're finding ways to take that kind of human-oriented work and delabel it, turn it into something that the product can do. And so instead of having lead qualification done by an SDR, automatically qualification by people just starting out using your product and being successful with it. Right. And so the ultimate goal is you know totally frictionless, uh, great experience without you know unnecessary work and friction for the for the user. But I think that if anyone, even if they have no element of product led growth, should understand the user and buyer journey and the different touch points you have with that buyer and what is the friction and what's the drop off in those touch points and then what can you do? And it could be a product perspective, it could be just a process improvement perspective, but what can you do to improve that friction and, and better appeal uh, to your user?
0: I think that's great advice. I think that's great advice for everyone listening and always for ourselves as well. So. Kyle, this was great. It was interesting. I learned things. I hope our audience did too. And I really appreciate you joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me, Rebecca.
0: Right. That does it for today's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product, your company, and your career.